Hi there, welcome to an episode of an Inside View podcast in association with On The Ball Team Building. I'm your host, Jamie Finn. If this is your first time listening, please do go back to episode one and have a listen. If you haven't done so already, please do click subscribe. There is a business or sports person in each of us, and we hope that our guest stories will help our listeners to chase their dreams. Hi everyone, welcome to episode 5 of season 3 of an Inside View podcast with On The Ball Team Building. Big shout out to Shire Baron Cafe and Clarny for the continued support, we really appreciate it guys. I'm also delighted to announce that we have recently teamed up with Dubai based ready made meal company Fit Meals. They have come on board to support us here at an Inside View podcast. Their ready made meals are excellent and so convenient the team over at fit meals have given us a discount and to avail of that discount search an inside view podcast or on the ball team building on instagram and you'll see the code that you can avail of when purchasing fit meals products it is now time to bring on this week's guest i'm delighted to be joined by dubai based irish man billy harkin Coming from a strong line of Irish entrepreneurs, Billy's father gave him a strong foundation of integrity and hard work. Harkin's people-centric focus made him a successful business developer here in the UAE. From the hills of Donegal to scaling the heights of the world's most vibrant city, there is no doubt we have a huge amount to cover with Billy, so let's bring him on. Hi Billy, thanks for taking time out to come on Inside View Podcast. I appreciate it. How are you keeping? Doing well, Jamie. How are you, mate? Very good, very good. We're uh, we're trying to get this over the line for the last couple of weeks, and it's um it's great eventually to to have you on. Um, I think we've a, a good bit to cover. You have quite an interesting story. Um, you know, ranging back from from Birmingham to Donegal to Dubai, um, and everything in between. So I'm looking forward to unravel that and and up to the present day. Um. Before we get to that, you're big into fitness um, and you have been for the last couple of years. Is that something you've been into all your life or was there a turning point? Um, I think when I was young, I always played a bit of Gaelic football and, and football. I wouldn't have said I was a you know, top player by any stretch, but I always liked to, 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 to get into team sports. Um, I think when I moved to Dubai, it kind of took a bit of a backseat. Um and and work and business took over and it wasn't you know um that kind of place i played a bit of football i guess in my 30s then for a, a what you would call a sunday league team here and then i you know I took a hiatus then with the business um and i think when i turned 40 then i started getting into triathlon which was my uh you know my new community and that's been it's been my thing for the last decade or so so uh <laughs> Sad, sad life. That I live. <laughs> is, it, uh, is, that what, is that what they call a midlife crisis, or is that beyond uh, the midlife crisis? Sure. I think midlife is about mid thirties. I'm way, way the other side of that. <laughs> um, late, late life, late life crisis. <laughs> late life, and the thing is, I suppose you know it's important to, to highlight that you're not just this casual um, athlete. You're actually, you know, you've achieved quite a remarkable amount over the last couple of uh, years and I suppose most notably would be um, a couple of weeks ago you won was it won your your age category what was yeah. do you want to just give us a bit of insight 
Yeah, one of, one of the goals for this year, obviously turning into the, the 50 plus um, age group, uh, uh, was to, to prove to myself that, you know, 50s isn't, you know, it, it's the new 40s. Uh, and uh, one of my goals for the year uh, was to have a, a good crack at, at winning my, uh, or at least come in top three of my, uh, my age category to, or to get a qualification uh, for the World Championships, which is in Utah in uh, October. So I was able to achieve that in Oman in uh, February this year. And then I did them a week later, I did uh, the Dubai Half Ironman and um, I got a PB. I actually got the fastest because it's a faster race in, in Dubai. It's, it's flatter. So I actually got a personal best of 432 on that. So two, uh, two, uh, two goals in a week was pretty good. I went and celebrated hard for about four weeks after that. Important. <laughs> all, all good work. <laughs> uh, it's important to have that balance as well. Um, I suppose before we delve into, in, into it any further, did you, you know, when you, when you got into um, endurance events, were you like obviously you know you probably did a bit of running and stuff and you're quite fit in that regard but did you know how to swim or did you have to get lessons and all that yeah i was you know i think that the main trigger for me to get into uh the triathlon was when my my kids were young and they were partaking in a biathlon event which is a swim and run just a bit of a splash and dash and then they invited the dads in to to, to have a a, a a dad race and uh, I quickly realized that I am a terrible swimmer. In fact, I nearly drowned that day and came absolutely last. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think I, I learned to swim when I was young, but I clearly forgot somewhere along the rest of my life. And um, it really, um, I, again, it, it spooked me into, crikey, what if, the, what if the kids got into trouble in, in deep water? And, you know, I need to be able to, as their father, uh, you know, at least get in there and rescue them and not have them come and rescue me. So, uh, so that was, that was a trigger. Um, I wouldn't have said I was a biker. I hadn't had a bike since I was 17 or 16, probably. So, and I, I didn't think I was much of a runner either, really. I used to do the odd 5k or 10k run. So none of it was, you know, a passion for me, but then um, I think Dubai, because of, the facilities here and there was a big triathlon community you, you sort of start training for swimming then you meet people who are sort of doing the biking and the running and then you go buy a bike and and all of a sudden you're you're starting a small mini events that then go into the what they call the sprints then the the olympic distance you double that up you're at a half distance you double that up you're at a full distance and then you're you know then you're in the iron man world <laughs> and it's addictive <laughs> And you you touched on a point there. It's addictive. In in what regard would you say it is addictive? Is it the fact that the aftermath of the race, or is it during the race, what goes on in your mind? Oh, it's definitely the aftermath. Uh, during the race, you are you are just managing the chimp on your shoulder who's screaming at you, saying, "Why are you doing this?" <laughs> um, so it's definitely the pain cave when you're in the race. But I think um, I think we're all you know alpha males to some degree we're competitive aren't we and uh you know whilst you're doing a lot of it for yourself and your fitness and your well-being and your mental health uh and just to stay in shape uh there is a competitive edge to you And when you've got a community as we do the races are you know you know there's 
know, group of us that train together and we usually race together. So there's always a bit of banter, a bit of, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, rubbing each other up uh, on the lead up to the race, getting into the mind game. So when, when race day comes, it's, it's quite fun. And obviously uh, the after party is, is, uh, is always legendary, <laughs> you know? So yeah, I think it's, it is addictive in that sense. Cause if you treat it like, um, uh, a community and it's social you know it's not just you on your own out there in the middle of the desert training uh, i don't think any of us are that passionate about it but it's a community it gets you out of bed really early in the morning it keeps you fit you you, you love the people you're doing it with you respect them there's a healthy competition there and it's a and, and then you you socialize together so uh, or a party together after so so i think from that respect it's it's a full circle Brilliant. No, definitely. It's uh, it's something you see a lot of people have gotten into over the last couple of years. And, uh, you know, obviously it makes it um, more appealing over here with the weather compared to Ireland. You're running in the rain and the wind and <laughs> and uh, what, what, what else what else can be thrown at you in the wind and rain? Um, it's, the, it, it's, the, it's the new golf, right? The people don't play golf anymore. They do this, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, a li- it's a little bit more expensive than golf, actually. <laughs> Jeez, and golf is expensive uh, enough. I'm looking to get into that myself. <laughs> Um, don't get a tri- triathlon then <laughs> uh, no I won't Jesus <laughs> um, Billy what kind of goes through your head when you're you know when you're in these endurance events um, you know can you kind of bring us into that mindset and the psychology psychology behind it yeah I think um, so so if I regress from that into running a business you know, running a business and we talked about team sports earlier football Gaelic you know I like the team sports but when you're running a business you know even though you're building a team or teams within the business you're you're, you're kind of out there in the front leading it and you're talking to yourself in your own head and you're stretching you're stretching yourself in in a business sense you you're in the new territory usually when you're building a business and, and growing it um so it's you know I, I i draw a lot of comparisons to triathlon you're out there on your own you have to really manage your your mind cuz you know yeah it's a long day you know when you're whether it's training 20 plus hours a week to get to the start line or whether you're in the race itself um you have to really manage those thoughts that come into your head and, and put them down and, and be in the now, as I say, you know, because if you start the swim on, on an Ironman event and you're thinking about the bike or the run, you're uh, you're going to have a really tough day. So you've got to be really in the in the moment. Right. What what am I doing now? What what do I need to be doing now? How can I do it better? And repeat what am I doing now? What should I be doing now? How can I do it better? And just don't even think about anything except the next marker that's in front of you. And that's the same in business. You can you can put your strategy and your plan together. You can put all the preparation, i.e. training, in a business. But you've got to perform in the now, on the day to day to day to day. And you're going to have bad days. And you're going to have bad, you know, minutes and hours out on a race but you've got to overcome that and remember the plan and stick to the plan and follow through on the plan and and say i've done this i've trained for this i know that i, I know my body can do this i know you know i can i can withstand this discomfort so i think there's, there's a lot of parallels and i think that's why it's probably become very popular with businessmen or business people uh because it's um it's a damn sight more uh 
these have downside more mental strength than a game of golf. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. And it's, it's it's something I find very interesting as well is that, you know, I, I know obviously yourself and a few other guys who, who work with ALS actually get up early in the morning um, and traditionally, well, not really traditionally, but from people who I have interviewed, who I've spoken to, if you win the morning, you win the day. Um, have you always been a morning person or is that something that just has come with the, with moving to Dubai? Yeah, look, you know, I worked in construction for most of my younger years up until my mid-20s. And that's an early starting game. You know, you're, you're getting up at 5.36 in the morning to get out, you know, to, to the job sites. Um, so I'd never had any problem getting up early in the morning. I am a kind of a morning person. And I was never really a morning person. I got up and exercised straight away. You know, you get back into the back of a work van and travel for an hour and then start work. Um, so, but yeah, I think the last 10 years, <clears throat> that whole, you know, getting the time to do this when you're running a business is really difficult. You can't do, you can't plunk training in, in the middle of a working day because you need to be there in the business. So the only hours that are available and, and in the evenings you're with the family and, and, and you've got responsibilities there. So the only hours you can steal are when, when, when the world's asleep, you know, and that's usually between four and seven in the morning which is a, is a wonderful time of day actually because you know the world really is asleep and uh it's really peaceful and it's in this part of the world it's also nice and cool um so and and the other thing about um getting out there in the morning is you haven't allowed anything to start getting into your head for the day yet you know so you've got a really clear head in the morning so i get out of bed you know, 4.30, the alarm goes off. Um, I walk literally straight to the uh, Nespresso machine. I, I get myself a shot of coffee. I eat Anna, and then I get myself ready, and I'm I'm off, you know? Um, and it's it's a great ritual. Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely a lot to be said for, you know, it's, um, I suppose, just getting into that that routine. It's great over here, like you said. You've no option over here um, because it's too, it's, it's, it is way too warm as well in the middle of the day to train over here if you are going to go down that route. Um, one thing I, I like to do with my guests is to bring them to bring them back to the start, you know, how did their upbringing shape them into the person they are today. So yeah. going by the accent, I, I know you're Irish, but we would know you're Irish going by the accent. You are originally from Birmingham. Um, do you want to kind of give us a brief insight into the transition from Birmingham to Donegal and then to uh, Dubai? Yeah, um, so uh, I was born in Birmingham um, to two Irish parents. Uh, they were from Donegal and like most of my cousins and um, most of that era really, a lot of Irish people who'd moved to you know, London, Birmingham, Liverpool, Manchester, um, for work uh, in my, you know, my parents' generation, uh, we're all English-born sort of children. And ultimately, like a lot of Irish parents, they, they, they take you back to Ireland at a certain point in time. They go, you know, back to their roots. For me, that was when I was about eight years old. Uh, I think it was 1979. And so... We landed in Donegal, which a place called Bunkrana, mm -hmm. which was just outside, just over the over the border, actually from from Derry. Um, 
and, and 1979 was a was an interesting period as well because there was a lot of troubles going on uh, back there. So uh, having an English accent, which I did, uh, wasn't yeah, didn't make you popular. <laughs> yeah, what, what was that a, like? <laughs> During that oh, time, especially, yeah. Oh, I had lots of people, you know, waiting for me in the schoolyard every day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, they were queuing up, uh, uh, and and to have uh, uh, my name is Billy, and and that's obviously, you know, as an Irish Catholic, it's probably the worst name you could have uh, at that time uh, because of King William of Orange, so um, King Billy. So yeah, it was an interesting time. My my sisters took to it pretty well because they're girls, and you know they adapted and they took on the Irish accent a lot quicker than I uh, I allowed myself to. I I nearly kind of refused <laughs> to to you know they they, they put us into Gaelic you know, Irish. You had to learn Irish, and uh, I was like, nope, not learning this. <laughs> uh, never going to need this because I'm not staying. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, <laughs> yeah, because yeah, when you get when you get beaten up most days, it's it's not a sort of place you think, yeah, I like this place. <laughs> so yeah, it was, it's tough tough for a few years, but you know, then eventually, you know, other kids. The good thing is, other kids came over who had English accents, and uh, attention weaned away from you, and eventually onto them. So so yeah, I, I did, in fairness, you know, settle in quite nicely there between the ages of eight and. 17 when I left so and I still I, I obviously have great friends there now and go back regularly so so yeah was there I know we're, we were kind of messing about it there but we, was there a bit of thing like there obviously was tension there at the time but would you have gotten a bit too much attention that in regards to pushing and getting beaten up and all that or no look you know it was it was schoolyard stuff you know it, you know they weren't you know gangs of people or anything and they weren't you know taking out sticks and knives like they do nowadays but uh you know just you know you had to it, it toughened you up you had to stand up for yourself you know and I found myself actually standing up for a lot of the other younger guys who were coming through once you know as I say I, I got in and had a few years there and you know made my stand and had my friends uh I found myself being that you know protector in the yard of, of younger younger guys who were coming in so um yeah it was uh, it was good learning curve you know and yeah kids are kids aren't they they yeah. they just it's something to do, do, do <laughs> i think, think they've got play they got playstations and stuff now to do that a lot yeah. more interesting <laughs> they don't they don't fight in schoolyards anymore <laughs> no no it's all uh, all virtual no yeah um, yeah <laughs> do, you, do you think if you have to look back do you think that was some kind of trigger moment in your mind that built in resilience you know, that period, probably subconsciously, you probably at the time, you didn't take much notice of it. It's obviously difficult, but looking back, do you think that period really built up resilience in your in your life that you pulled on in, in later years? Yeah, for sure. You know, you, you, you become, you know, you, you know that ultimately in the end you're on your own. You know, mm. you can have the best parents, the best, you know, but you got to fight your corner at the end of the day. In the world, you know, everybody has to, right? You know, you can't expect expect somebody to, you know, be there protecting you all the time. You've got to, you've got to stand your ground and and whatever that means. You know, and I think that's that's life. You know, that's Definitely. just life, and it's something we, you know, the kids, all of our kids have to learn. They've got to get out, be in the world, and you know, the world's gonna 
well, it's a, uh, you know, it's a collision sport out there, you know, the world's going to knock you around a bit. Yeah, <laughs> right. every day, you have to be used to it. Oh, geez. Um, definitely, you know, it, every day is uh, it's just the way it is, um, especially when you're in a, when you move country. And I suppose on that point, at the age of 17, you went back to Birmingham. Um, mm. Was that always the goal or, or was it just a circumstances at the time? So, so when, when my dad was in Birmingham, he was a contractor. And then when he and his brother, Tony, left, uh, their two younger brothers had taken over the business. So the business that dad used to run was still there. So in my, in my head, I always kind of had it in my head. That's, you know, I want to, you know, you want to be like your dad, don't you? You want to go back there and, you know, take the crown. And, you know, that's my, that's my destiny. But I think when I was 15, uh, mom and dad took us back for a summer holiday to Birmingham and we had the best time and my uncles took me out on on the building sites with them for for like a week you know and uh, I, I was working as a 15 year old meeting the, the cat building sites are great places you know you meet you meet some really interesting characters and uh, I, I was just like Oh my God, I, I remember coming back from that holiday. I could not wait to finish school. I was like, I, I am out of here. <laughs> I'm on the next flight. <laughs> so my mom managed to hold me off until I finished my um my intercert. And then oh, yeah. I was I was I was gone. <laughs> gone, gone, gone. And it, it, how did you come about um coming to Dubai then? It was 96, wasn't it? You're here. Jeez, you're here 96 a long long time now yeah but we, we'll yeah. get to that in a few minutes but how did that how did you end up in Dubai from Birmingham? yeah yeah so I was working in Birmingham for about nine years um and I met this wonderful girl and she's a Welsh girl but she was working in London and I was working in Birmingham and we were you know we were dating for a couple of years and you know the motorway thing was going on. She had a good job down there. I was working in a family business. So it was kind of like, you know, do, do, do I move to London? No, it's, it's not going to work. You know, um, is she going to move to Birmingham? I wouldn't expect that. So we said, like, let, let's let's do one of these year out things that students do. Let's just take a year out and travel the world or or go to America. Or, or My sister had just gone to America. And I thought, yeah, Boston, let's go to Boston. Um, or let's go, you know, Australia. And uh, so she's like, great, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start applying for jobs. So I was like, great. And uh, then she got called for an interview in Dubai. And I remember her telling me, I was like, do where? Do what? Where is that? I had no clue. And she's like, oh, it's in the Middle East. I was like, Jesus, like... Iran, like Saudi, uh, and she's like, no, 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 it's a different place, very close to there. So I was a little, little apprehensive as you would be, you know. And uh, she, they flew her over. She had the interview, they offered her the job, and she came back with the, you know, she said it's a fantastic place, you know. Uh, I, I start next month. Uh, I'll get started. You come out on holiday and then sort your house out and come on over. And I remember coming over on holiday and being really, really blown away with the place. You know, it was. Uh, yeah, not what I expected at all. So at the uh, scene, though, when you hopped off the plane, I'd probably be safe enough to say it was probably all desert at the time. There was probably no buildings whatsoever. I remember we met for a coffee a couple of weeks ago, and I was amazed with the stories you were telling me. 
Yeah, yeah. Oh, God. When the Dubai you know today, you know, the marina where we met, uh, none of that exists. That was pure desert out there. And the, the airport, uh, so the airport that you know today, that Terminal 1 and Terminal 2 and 3, they didn't exist. So the airport we flew into was the old Rashid Terminal, uh, which was, you know, it wasn't like a chicken shed, but it was, it was pretty small-time airport. Um, I remember getting off the plane because you got off on the tarmac and you walked, you know, you didn't get into these fancy bridges and stuff. You got <laughs> off the tarmac, walked along like you would with, you know, at home. Except I remember getting off and thinking, Jesus, those engines are warm. And uh, walked down the steps of the, uh, the, the the plane and go, Jesus, those engines are warm. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't the engines, it was Dubai. <laughs> uh, so uh, so that was, uh, I was like, holy cow, how do people live here? How do they breathe and work here? Um, but but I was really blown away with the hospitality, how friendly everybody was. Uh, I remember leaving my, I, had a, I changed money because back then, you know, you change a big pile of cash in the, uh, to, to take the cash with you, you didn't have cards or anything. So uh, I, I had a wallet full of cash and we'd gone out and I'd left it on the bar because it was so, you know, it was so full of cash, I couldn't fold it, so I couldn't sit on it. <laughs> so I put it on the bar and I left this place and I, you know, it was, up, it was in a, a restaurant in Deera and I got into the elevator, went down, got out into the road and walked up the road like 50, 100 yards. And, and I heard this guy sort of running behind me going, hey, hey. And I was like, I was just like, oh, is this guy, who's this guy, you know? <laughs> and he was, he, he'd, he'd actually, he grabbed my wallet. He was, he wasn't, he was just a guy sat at the bike who grabbed my wallet, got into the elevator, came down and ran 100 yards up the road to yeah. give me my wallet. I was like, what what is this place and i was trying to give him some money to say thank you and he's like that he was running away going no it's okay and i was like this there's something special about this place <laughs> you know that people don't do that normally where no where no, we're used to that, no. <laughs> <laughs> so uh so we thought we'd give it a year here and then move on uh, but you know one year turns into two and and as you say for most expats they'll tell you that story once you go Past year number three, it's it's hard to 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 move on. You know, kids get into school and that. You know, life goes by. Half my life here now. Tell us about your the first couple of years here. Um, they were challenging, like every other person that comes here. Um, it, there's a lot of ups and downs. Um, you were close to going home, aren't you? At one stage. Yeah, because you know, I you know, since being young, I've never, I've never not worked. I've, you know, even my weekends since I was a kid, I was always spending them working with dad or, you know, doing jobs. I, I'm, a, I'm a worker. Yeah, you know, I'm a, you know, I've got to be working. And uh, when I came here and seen all the construction, I was like, I'll have no job, no problem getting a job here. But you know, I, I was a, I was a, you know construction guy I wasn't a project manager or an engineer or didn't have the experience or the qualifications for that so I was you know pretty much a laborer in the eyes of uh you know what I could offer the the the, the guys on the building site so you know the sort of salary I could expect to earn as you know shoveling concrete would not really stack up wouldn't make any sense so so yeah, I, I I was really struggling with that. How am I going to get work, and and how do I reinvent myself? So I I um, 
I was advised to kind of apply myself to sort of sales roles and stuff like that. So it took a few months, took about three months, three and a half months for me to get a job. And I was really at the point of, God, this is, you know, such a great place, but I can't get a job and I I can't not be working, you know. And and look, we were lucky. Amanda had a great job. The rent was paid and and the bills were paid. And, you know, it wasn't a financial pressure to get a job. It was just a, you know, uh, I I guess a mental health need for me to get a job. You know, you need to be in work. You can't be just sitting around uh, waiting for a, something to drop you know so that was that was tough but once I got going it was it was great as they always say in Dubai the best way to get a job is to have a job so don't wait for the great job just take a shit job and then you're out there meeting people and by definition by interacting with people being out there in the in the work environment you're going to get another job probably several other jobs but the key is I think a lot of people wait and wait and wait for the perfect job just to pull up, and that that just doesn't happen. I think you've got to get out, get on one of the buses, the first bus that pulls up, and then you change lanes as you go forward. But you've got to be out there. You referenced the story before about Shakespeare Road. Uh, now it's what is it, fourteen lanes or whatever it is in total, or six and six, or whatever. Uh, it was only two lanes, was it, at one stage? Yeah, you know, you could, you know, drive to Abu Dhabi. It, it had speed bumps on it and camels and two lanes in each direction. It'd take you about two and a half hours to get to Abu Dhabi. It's a nightmare, you know. And, and you know, you get to Jebel Ali, the Jebel Ali Hotel. I remember the first time I got there, I thought I was in Abu Dhabi. I thought that was Abu Dhabi. <laughs> it was so there was because there was nothing between the uh, where I guess the, the Burj Khalifa is now. That was all, that was a, uh, it was called Defense Round of as big, a military camp training camp there but the, basically the where the Dusit Fani hotel is that's where the the building stopped and then you just had this strip that went out into the uh, desert a few hotels out there where the marina is but nothing nothing except sand and camels <laughs> which was fine you know it, it, you know because D- Dubai back then was Bur Dubai you know the you know Deira and Bur Dubai was the, the new Dubai, as, as it were. Oh. And there was lots of bars and restaurants down there. That's where all the... Bird Dubai was where all the expats lived. And Deira was the original Dubai. Whereas now, all the expats are up at the marina. And uh, Bird Dubai is the original Dubai. <laughs> Jeez. And what we, can you remember the first maybe two or three years? I know you touched on it, but what were the biggest challenges? You know, obviously, getting a job was, was difficult, but from a, I suppose it was definitely a culture shock, was it? You know what? Um, I don't think it was so much because what what was really interesting to me was that yeah, I was coming to I was living in a, an Arab country uh, and an Arab culture, but it it's it's it was so heavily expat populated. Still is. I mean, it's still about eighty to ninety percent expat populated. So everybody spoke English, so you didn't have to you know feel like you were had to speak the language you had to respect the culture which was it was just easy to do that because you know it's, it's a respectful culture you know uh, you you know you can have a beer just don't smash up bus stops and and you know urinate on things that's you know just behave yourself basically be a normal person and and you can live a great life here so 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 it wasn't too much of a, a culture shock at all actually and uh what i liked about it is no nobody really talked you know if you were 
you know, when I was in England or Ireland, everyone's like moaning about stuff, you know, that, that the government or the, or the, you know, I don't know, the weather or, or whatever. There's always something to, to have a gripe about or religion, you know, religion back home and, and stuff back then. It, it, nobody talked about any of that here because they, they it because everybody's from different places. So nobody really knows anybody's business or where they're from or culture. So nobody really gets into that, you know, uh, detail or, or 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 digs in you know people just just get on with their job you know and, and that's the other thing everybody's working right so we're all we're not sitting around you know we're all working so just everybody connected really well and that's that's what I've loved about you know my kids all sort of growing up here is that diversity of mindset of you know 97 98 uh, nationalities in their schools uh, you know so they have just this great wide world that they're connected to whereas you know again coming out of Birmingham to Birmingham into Bunkrana um, you know when I was eight years old you were either English or Irish Catholic or Protestant <laughs> that no, there was nothing else that nobody cared about any you know if a an Arab walked into that town they would they wouldn't know what to do with him <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean like what the hell is this guy doing <laughs> <laughs> and over the the last 20 was it 20 26 27 years you're, you're here now um what have you seen been the challenges you know that a lot of expats face and you know a lot of them mightn't stay here long you know a lot of them might only come over here maybe six months not even a year and unfortunately they end up back home mm. yeah um so 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 the question is what 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 advice would i give anybody coming here or yeah what what, what 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 challenges have you seen people face and then you know what advice would you give them so so you know, and we've seen it, and I've seen it a few times since I've been here. T- timing is, you know, we can't control things like pandemics and global financial meltdowns, and that, and that, unfortunately, you know, it, 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 situations like that, people have to leave because Dubai is the sort of place that you can't just hang around in, just from a visa perspective and a cost of living. You know, if something like the pandemic happens and you lose your, you don't have much of a choice. You have to leave. Uh, I've seen that global financial meltdown 2008-9 massive exodus um so uh, you know aside from even september 11th i was here when that happened and a lot of people left through choice then fear you know there was a what what's going to happen now um so so notwithstanding the universe and, and and the things that you know natural things that are outside of your control i think this is for sure one of the best places in the world you could live people say oh is it expensive to live in dubai i go it's as expensive as you want it to be you know there are people living here on this you know and there are people living here on this and you know and everything in between so you can live you can cut your cloth to suit in this in this city it's friendly it's safe it's a sort of place you could put your wife or your daughter out at midnight into the middle of this city and you would feel safe with them there. And there aren't many places, unfortunately, in the world that offer that. Uh, it's it's tax-friendly. It's got great weather. got great facilities. It's English-speaking. It's got great infrastructure. You direct flight from pretty much most places. You know, I, I've gone through the exercise many times of where do I go when I leave here? Because I will have to leave here eventually. Um, 
and I've I've gone to all of those countries. I listed them down and and scored them on what I believed would be the things that are important to me. Nothing scores as high as Dubai. Nothing. Yeah. And you said you've, you'll have to leave at some stage. Do you see yourself leaving? You know, I suppose when the kids are are um, finished university. Yeah. So so I've got two out of three of my children are already gone. Uh, the two well, the two boys. They both went to the UK, did, did their O-level, uh, they're leaving cert or their O-levels in the UK, spent two years each there because we wanted them to kind of get a bit of time out of Dubai. So they both went to boarding school in Bath and then um, and then they both went on to university, both in Switzerland now. Um, the Jenna, my daughter, so she leaves this summer. It's, it's an interesting time for us, myself and my wife, Amanda, because this is officially the first time this summer we will be coming back post-summer without any children <laughs> we're child-free we're empty nesters so it's a it's a really interesting time for us um you know what does the new chapter or the new book look like you know because the kids are going to be doing their own thing you know they'll go on from a levels to university to jobs and boyfriends and girlfriends and marriage you know th- this is it it's the beginning of the next phase so so what does it look like? And they're unlikely to come to Dubai every year or every holiday. They, you know, it's just not going to be feasible for them. So what we're trying to do is build a life. You know, we're building a house back in Donegal at the minute uh, near my parents' house. So I'd like to spend a few months of the year, year in Ireland. Um, we have a place in France. I'd like to spend a few months of the year there. But certainly I'd like to spend at least six months here. <laughs> Tax purposes, mainly <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, 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 and obviously the winter the winter sun as well so so that's that's the balancing act we've got to we've got to come up with so but i'd certainly see myself here for at least another five years you're going to have uh, a, a bit of everything um top up with the irish guinness and then you'll be able to come back here and detox from this and you have uh, best of all worlds <laughs> yeah yeah well it's funny um because i was just before uh, the call, I was uh, I was online. I've got some friends doing Ironman Cork in August, oh, yeah. so so I'm going to fly in there and, and take a look at the, the old Ironman Cork. So I might have it on my future radar for a race to do when I'm in Ireland. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. Uh, the weather will be obviously be, be a challenge there. You know, God knows what you'll uh, what you'll get on the day. Um, but yeah, I I heard right. You're building a house in in Donegal. Um, I've been told it's supposed to be a mansion. Is it a? Uh, is it is it big enough? Or what's the? Uh, <laughs> I know you're well, you know, it's modest. A, it's a small house in Dubai terms. Let's put it like that. <laughs> but, <laughs> but but if you go back to where I come from, they're like Jesus Christ! It's a fucking hotel he's building up there. <laughs> It's, it's not it's not but it's just up on a hill and it kind of looks it looks bigger than it is <laughs> <laughs> brilliant brilliant look i want to delve into so when you're you got a job um in in effect you kind of have a sales role um but i believe you you spent the time working with a company that you ultimately ended up buying uh do you want to kind of bring us through that that period and how you got to the stage in of working on the Burj Al Arab, Burj Khalifa, Atlantis. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I so so the first job I got here when I took that first job was a job. It was a, a 
crane testing and fire safety business in Sharjah that I worked for. for so I worked there for 12 months. And about six or seven months into that job, I got offered the job uh, with the company that you're talking about there. And what was interesting about that job, it was less money. You had to take a pay cut. Not that it was a good salary to begin with, but it was a smaller salary, but a much more exciting company. And the sort of company that it was, it was smaller. It was about 10, 12 people, 15, I think, people. The owner was a really interesting guy. And what I loved about it, they, they did like climbing, like, you know, like, like rock climbing. So we call it rope access. So the, the access structures and buildings and ships and antennas and oil rigs with ropes. And they carry out everything from inspections to repairs, maintenance services, um, cleaning, whatever, whatever you need on the end of a rope. So the diversity of that application was really interesting to me as a 25, 26 year old, I was like, wow, you know, this is, this is such a cool company. Um, you, you know, you, you would, you could be on an oil rig on a Monday and a aircraft carrier on a Tuesday and a, you know, one of these wonderful buildings that they build over here on a Wednesday. And it just was so interesting. So I ended up, uh, taking a job with this company and, and I became, the owner's kind of right-hand man. So what I was did you the, do? Um, it's, it's, sorry for interrupting there. But what yeah. did, did were you like actually on site on the oil rigs, um, physically hanging from the the objects, or what? What exactly was it? Yeah, yeah. So, so to start with, my first job was to build. Do you know the uh, Atislac ray domes that they sit on top of the Atislac big sort of golf balls effectively yeah since you said it to me i've been watching i i've I've looked (laughs) over i've seen it yeah i've been up in buildings i've seen i see what you're on about (laughs) that was that was my first job so so basically it's back back to my construction route so it's easy it's construction except you're doing it at fairly extreme heights and attached to harnesses and ropes so you're suspended while you're doing your work so so the the and I, i don't think i had i'll I wasn't a guy who was an adrenaline kind of guy. I didn't, you know, pursue heights. I don't, I don't think I was scared of them. Well, I clearly wasn't because I was doing the work up there. But I wouldn't have been a guy that would be an adrenaline junkie that goes, goes after work at height. So anyway, to, to start, the, the, the business was so small. I was, I was in the overalls every day. I was on site. I was getting materials. I was picking and dropping the guys. I was making tea for the boss. I was... You know, chief cook and bottle washer, you just, you know, basically everything. And that that was the case for, you know, I worked for the company for 10 years, built it up over the 10 years with him. Um, he he was, you know, over the, the, the second half of that period, he was very much not there half the time. So I was running the business for all intents and purposes. Um, and then um, I got myself into a position. Um, I bought property here off plan and to move into at a young family then. And um, yeah, I had some money put aside. My wife had started her own business. Um, So I was in a position when he came into my office one day and he wanted, you know, he's like, look, I'm going to move to China. I've had enough of this. I'm I'm out of here. I was able to, 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 to make him an offer and acquire the business with some help from my father. So, um, so yeah, I took over the business after 10 years of working for it. And then um, and then I, I grew the business. You know, I, I put a lot of 
effort into really exponentially growing it as fast as I could instead of taking any money out I you know I paid myself I was being paid a very small wage back then I kept it like that and that's all I took from the business for the following six or seven years while we continued to grow we put all the all the profits were drilled back in and and a bit more money on top of that to, to grow it and basically we took it from a business of 60 65 people to a business of 700 odd people over seven years so we really hit hit the market right it was a good time for us um and the oil was going off the dial uh, price wise so work was going through the roof we opened in qatar we opened in abu dhabi we opened in saudi so we really took the the business model and we cookie cut it cookie cut it and and then repeat 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 and then we uh, we ran a sale process for the business which was the uh, objective of why we bought it in the first place was to grow it and sell it and we successfully sold that at the end of 2013 we sold 70% of it to a plc called uh, palfinger uh, austrian company uh, global business um really good sale did a really good deal there we sold 70 percent. we then had to stay on for our earn out period to the middle of 2016 to to then sell out the remaining 30 percent of shares and then they asked us we had a great relationship with the, the the new owners they they then wanted us to stay on as consultants to the business they were doing a couple of other acquisitions in the region so they wanted to help to integrate those businesses so uh, you know we stayed on for another two years uh, until the middle of 18 and then we just parted ways um and you know i wanted to take a break with the family then and a bit of time out so i thought i'm going to take a year which turned into two or three years <laughs> which actually worked out really well considering covid kicked in i was like okay glad i'm not in the the business world at the minute so uh, so but then i got into a new business um last year and uh, acquired a small uh, a very small interest in um, laser so they, they do laser scan or lidar scanning so they do the the scan and build 3d models of of assets or um, uh, so it, it, it kind of um, so so there's a lot of there's a lot of buildings here in in the Middle East now that have been thrown up over the boom times that are now being repurposed um a lot of new owners coming in buying these assets but they want to verify the asset so we would go in and scan the asset build a 3d model of it and provide accurate as built information on the asset so so it's a nice, nice little business and again i've managed to by luck uh, i've managed to bypass the the covid you know um situation and then get started in a in a small way again and get get a bit of interest in in uh, in the new business. Has your father got his office yet? <laughs> Not yet. No, he's back in Ireland now. <laughs> it won't be long. He'll he'll be back. He'll be back for sure. He was requesting <laughs> one day, one stage. He was uh, he was hoping there was one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, great guy. Great guy. Um, brilliant. No, I found that story very funny. Um, the. The heights aspect, Billy, must have been. Did ever like? Was there any fear whatsoever in you when you were, would have been hanging from these oil rigs or hanging from the buildings, 
Um, because I know you would have or your team would have walked on the Burj Al Arab and the Burj Khalifa. Like, what was it? What like it was first? My 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 question is the fear aspect of it. Did it ever set into your own mind? And then we'll we'll chat about the the projects. Yeah, look, you know, when I was doing it, that you you know, when you're going over the edge of a anything, um, you know, even if you go from a, a a thrill perspective, if you want to rappel down a, a, a cliffside, if your bum's not going a little bit like that, it's, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah, there's something wrong with you. You know, yeah, there has to be that this, uh, your heart beats faster, your palms sweat, you know, there is an excitement, but a fear, you know, and I think they run very close to each other, excitement and fear run, run side by side. So, so for sure, yeah, you were very much alive when you were in those situations. You are very alert. Um, but again, remember, I didn't do a lot of that. I did that in the early years. But as I grew the business, I ran the business. We had lots of fantastically brave uh, guys that did it. A lot of our guys came from Nepal. You know, mountaineers by Gurkhas and mountaineers and uh, the Philippines and India, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, you know, so really tough, hardened guys who did it. And again, you, you've got to understand the system. The system we ran was a double rope system. You had two ropes. Each one of these ropes could take a ton and a half. Yeah. Now, all it's got to do is hold one person in place. One's a work rope. The other is a purely there as a backup full of rest ropes. Each of these ropes are anchored in two places on each guy. So you've got four points of contact, you know, four single individual points of contact. So you would need all four of those to fail for you to fall. And you're attached on two ropes, a double rope system. And people go, well, it's, oh, the rope's only 10, 10.5 millimeters thick. Trust me, it'll take a ton and a half. And what people don't realize and the, the market that we went after was the scaffold market. People fall off scaffold all the time. There are so many falls from height. And why did they fall? Because they're not attached, because they're working off platforms, but they fall off. So when you're working on ropes, which you're attached to all the time, you can't fall. It's impossible. So it's, a, it's an extremely safe system. So again, once you... You know, through the training of, you know, we were all, we worked under a governing body as well, it was properly regulated uh, industry. But what people don't realize is, is and, and again, through the training process, once you understand how safe this system is, fear goes out, out of your head because you go, this is actually safer than walking up a ladder, climbing a ladder or walking on a scaffold board, you know? Has you, has you any stories or anything dangerous happened to any of your guys at any stage? Surely on the law of averages, something must have happened over the years. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. We, we've, we've had, you know, you have near misses. We, we, we had one fatality, unfortunately, with a, a job we had in Abu Dhabi. which was really unfortunate. The guy actually put his fall arrest or his safety um, arrester for the backup line. He put it on upside down. So when it, it got called in to rescue him, when when the first rope failed, it actually wouldn't lock because it was it was reversed. So it ended up he he actually he went down quite a few floors attached to the rope still, but it wouldn't arrest his fall. So unfortunately, we lost um, a really good guy there. It was really sad and um, you know terrible for the business, terrible for his family, um, terrible thing to happen. Yeah, don't want to go through that again. 
No, definitely not. And uh, I, I, before I finish up the, the podcast, I'd like to just delve into that point when your your team was working on the, the Atlantis and the Burj Khalifa. You had the project when you for the Burj Khalifa. Was that after you sold the company? No, no, that was during. We used to do a lot of work on the Burj Khalifa. We used to install all the fireworks that you see go off every year. Uh, the the LED display that you see all the videos that go up the front of the uh, the Burj, we installed all of that. Uh, we even built the platform on top of the tip of the Burj Khalifa that the base jumpers, the, the, the famous base jump that was done off the Burj Khalifa. We had to build the platform that they jumped off, which was, that was a really challenging job because you're talking about um, a spire that is at, at its tip at 728 meters above ground level uh it's got a diameter of 1.1 meters and we then had to go 3.5 meters out from that tip and build a platform strong enough for two men to stand on and jump off uh into the abyss you know and that that from an engineering perspective that was a challenging project really challenging but something that we're really proud of. We've done lots of interesting projects. We also brought net net and deck systems in for the first time in Abu Dhabi. We did the top app project um, on the, is it the Sands building um, in Abu Dhabi? We've done the Louvre, the Guggenheim, the um, metro stations, the airport, you know, everything that's unique in in uh, in shape and design we were always involved in in those type of projects which again is what why i love the business a lot of our work was offshore on platforms and rigs and vessels and that was fine but it wasn't exciting work it was it was good good money generating work but it wasn't that exciting the excitement came from these wonderful structures that you get in this part of the world and and coming up with solutions to the access challenges that they had. And that's, I think, where where the company really was successful. You said the oil rigs, like what kind of stuff would you been on the oil rigs? So we used to run um, what they call NDT programs, non-destructive testing and inspection programs on the, on the rigs, which you'd have ro- rolling crews that would just go on and just check the thickness of the steel and the welds that they weren't, you know, cracked or failing. Then we'd have fabric maintenance teams, which would be the blast, blast, sand blasting and uh, repainting black, you know, uh, spray painting the the coating systems that protected the rigs from the the, uh, the elements. So these are just rolling contracts that you just constantly rolling teams in and out of rigs, in in and out of platforms. Um, and then you've got repair works and jack up rigs. You've got work on. Um, we used to do all of the. Uh, British and Navy, uh, British Navy vessels that came to the region, which are lots. Uh, so we'd be on aircraft carriers, we'd be on uh, frigates, um, painting them. Yeah, the, uh, some intre- really interesting work. Really miss you know that job because you just didn't know which hat you'd be wearing tomorrow. <laughs> Jeez, that's that's phenomenal. What, what like what challenges would you've met? You know. You probably had only a certain time frame to get all, all these projects done. Time was probably extremely important, was it? Well, that was our unique selling point, you know, because time is is a currency. You know, time is hugely valuable, much more than cost. 
uh, you know, time is is everything, and especially when you know you move as fast as this region does, and you know when oils, you know when oil was one hundred and thirty, hundred and forty dollars a barrel, you know those rigs have to be turned around and put back out to pump that oil out of the ground as quickly as possible. So the idea of putting it into a dry dock, scaffold in it, and then you know it would take them six weeks just to scaffold the legs, whereas we could be up there and start work on day two, you know, so. We were a, a much quicker solution to get guys on ropes suspended coming down those legs rather than building, you know, weeks and weeks of scaffold that did nothing. You know, had to still put workmen on the scaffold. Then you had to strip the scaffold down. Whereas we were what I would call what we sold ourselves as the one-stop shop. We are all of your contractors under one roof, you know, so you give me your complete budget of work at height what needs to be done we have the inspectors we have the engineers we have the blasters we have the painters we have the welders we have the cleaners they're all there multidisciplinary teams and we can have that jo- job done in days you know not weeks and that 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 then makes you very unique as a, a business offering for a client who's in a hurry Especially when when the oil price was uh, was that price, and I suppose every time, especially when you're talking about oil, in real, in regards to those rigs, uh, Billy, excuse my ignorance now, I wouldn't be too aware of it, but the rigs are they not like drilled to the ground? Like how would you, like how would they be maintained? Like or would it be offshore? Or would it be? Yeah, so you had two different types. So you had like let's say we'd have the floating jack up rigs which are the ones that jack the legs out onto a, you have a, like a jacket, it's called a jacket. And then that would float. It's a, a floating vessel. The, the legs would come out of the ground jacked up and the, and the rig would be able to float or, or sail into, into dry dock or into port. And then they'd jack the legs down again and you could then carry the work out on the legs. Mm-hmm. But then you have fixed platforms like in Qatar where there are permanent pl- offshore platforms where you know they're permanent fixtures and because it's over water we would be able to abseil down to the water line and carry all the work out below the below the jacket and under the water line, oh, oh, wait, the you, water line. yeah i was going to ask you don't go under the water would you no no we we would work with diving contractors there are divers who do do what we do underwater but we would it's a completely different type of business so we would work side by side with them. They'd do the underwater maintenance. We'd do the above water program. Very interesting. That's very, very interesting. And um, tell us about the Atlantis as well, uh, the iconic uh, hotel in, uh, in Dubai. You had uh, a bit of um, a project there as well, well before it opened. It'll be right in putting it that way. Yeah, we've done we've done a lot of work with the Atlantis over the years. Uh, uh, but the, the the I think the most interesting was was just before it opened. Again, it was around the the, the global financial crash time that they they spent a fortune. Obviously, they built the Palm Island, which is a hugely uh, famous palm shaped island in the in the sea. And the flagship project on that was the Atlantis, which which was going to sit right at the end of of the the crescent. And it was the first hotel they were going to open to much fanfare. But about six weeks before it opened, there was a huge fire. I think one of the guys that was on the uh, on the rooftop um, welding had actually left the weld torch on and uh, 
went for lunch and and the whole roof caught fire. And if you know, in the Atlantis, it's got a big sort of hole in the middle. Yeah. So this was just underneath that. So the whole facade turned black. I mean, they, they, they got the fire brigade, they put it out, but everything was black. So six weeks from this great big firework opening display, uh, we got a call that day. In fact, the, the fire was still being put out. We were called by the project director to get our asses over there now <laughs> and he said right okay because there's no access system on that hotel there is no other way to access the structure except via ropes he said i don't know how you do i don't care how you do it and i don't care what you charge me um just get this done get this fixed put it right <laughs> so we uh, we mobilized quite a sizable team to that project for uh following five or six weeks and we were hydroblasting off sit we had you know uh, suspended rigs with rotating heads like to, and and there were you know they'd already done the soft opening so there were people in the hotel so and we're trying we're trying to paint it and oh god it was just carnage but we got the job done and got it ready for the the grand opening and uh, yeah everybody was happy it was a good job for us yeah, it's uh, it's one of those you know get it done at whatever cost. <laughs> uh, we got we, we we've done a lot of you know, the, a lot of the work we've done over here is on fire damage. We did the address hotel, the torch tower, um, all these towers that catch fire and and need refurbing or refitting. We tend to get heavily involved in the tear downs and the refurbs of those as well. So. Brilliant, brilliant. That's very, very interesting. I, I could keep going ask questions in relation to that, which will, uh, I think, will uh, continue over a point. But just coming towards the end, um, I'd like to just get a bit more of an insight into why you decided to go down the route of the new business. Um, you know, it's very much virtual reality or is AR or yeah, it's kind of like, um, so yeah, I guess there's a lot of links there, you know, so so, um, so, so first of all, why, why did I get, get back into business again? Initially, as I said, I stepped away in mid-2018 and I did what, you know, what I thought I was working towards is, you know, some sort of semi-retirement or, you know, stepping out. Uh, but it's quite boring. <laughs> it's quite boring. Uh, and, you know, yeah, a year or two is great, but then you're like, you really want to get out of bed in the morning to do something. You want some sort of challenge. And then I started looking at businesses, you know, you know, small businesses that that was looking at a number of different ones back in the end of 2019 to see um, what 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 I could get into. And Q1 2020. I remember uh, I, I, I was looking at an events, you know, event management business. So I wasn't first what type of business it was. It didn't, it could be you know, broad. I didn't, I, well, I was clear as I didn't want to get into contracting, not in the way that we were. I didn't want to have lots of people and headaches and stuff like that. So I was looking at events management business. And then I remember striking a deal with the owners and saying, right, I'm going to go off. I went off to Scotland uh, on a whiskey tour on Eilie, the island of Eilie. Um, and it was just it was just on the week before we all locked down. It was, uh, the, I think it was between the 10th and the 16th of March, 2020. Yeah. 
And I'm on this little island in Scotland with, you know, wasn't looking at my phone or the news or anything like that. And my wife calls me up. She's like, you need to get back to Dubai. Everything's locking down. So uh, I kind of came back. And, and sure enough, I think I took the last flight out of Glasgow to get back here on the 16th of March. And obviously we went into this really weird place where the business that I was looking to acquire was completely paralyzed. Everything was paralyzed. You know, the whole pipeline of work that they had was, you know, suspended until further notice. So, you know, it, it kind of rendered the deal. Yeah. It, it was pointless buying a business that didn't have a pipeline. And I'd spoken to the owners and they said, look, it's not fair on you because you haven't got a business to sell until you start doing business again. So I think we just need to step away from it for, um, for a while until this this pandemic thing sweeps fast, which I thought would be over in a few months, but it wasn't. <laughs> uh, and in the meantime, I actually have, uh, there was a friend of mine who had the business that we're talking about now. He's got a couple of businesses. This is one of the businesses he had, which was struggling because of the COVID situation. And, you know, I've known, I've known this, this guy for a number of years and I, I knew about the business and I always found it really interesting, this, you know, scanning, because a lot of the contracting work that I used to do on, on rigs and buildings, you were always asking for as built information, correct, accurate information for the structures or what, and it was never forthcoming. It was always really difficult to get accurate information uh, on the, the specifications of, of the structures. Uh, mostly because most as-built drawings are incorrect. Even if they are there, you can't verify that this drawing is actually what you're looking at here. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it, 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 was, it was designed like this. Has it been built like this? Is that a true representation? Whereas what he did was LIDAR scan it, date, data capture the whole area within three, four millimeters of accuracy and give you a three, three-dimensional, not a two-dimensional, three-dimensional model that you can you know, go through and rely on. So I always find that really interesting. Um, and then when there was an opportunity to buy into the business with him, I was like, wow, you know, he, he was going to sell the business. I was like, wow, well, I happen to be in the market <laughs> for a business. <laughs> so let me take a look. So we were able to structure a deal where I acquired 70%. Um, I kept two of the partners on as uh, 10% shareholders each. And I brought in a third partner, who's my cousin, Derek, um, brilliant guy, uh, as another shareholder in the business. And uh, last year, we went about restructuring the business, rebuilding it and putting it back to where it was. And uh, this year, we're, uh, yeah, we're off to a flyer now. And uh, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting space, though, because as you say, we're we're getting, we're moving to this virtual world where all the assets in the world are going to have replicable um, digital twins. There's going to be a metaverse. As Inverse, you know, yeah. Metaverse is the big is the big thing now. So everything's going to have a digital a digital alternative. But that's effectively what we do. We we build the basis for the digital twin. Is what we we do. We scan assets and we build them in a digital point cloud and allow the clients access to them. But but where where you can go with that beyond what we do is is really fascinating. What that whole world, the Internet of Things, and uh, yeah, it's it's fascinating. And you're not just limited due to what you're doing. You're not just limited to Dubai or the UAE or the GCC. It can be done anywhere in the world, can't it? 
yeah, that's why I love about it. It's very scalable because um, the data capture, you know, the, the, the LIDAR scanners, most fit out firms or architecture firms will, will have a LIDAR scanner. So for me to do a job, which we've done in London and Spain, and we're doing a lot of work in Saudi now, we don't have to get on an airplane and fly to Saudi to, to, to capture the data. We just have to find a partner there who has the, the LIDAR scanner because the LIDAR scanners are reliable. They, they'll capture what's there because um, it's AI. So, but they will then send us the data and then we build the models. So you don't have to actually have hundreds of people flying here, there and everywhere to, 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 to build this business. And who would contact you? Is it the, like who would be defined, regarded as the client? Is it the builder or, or, or the, the buyer? Well, that's, you know, it's, it's an interesting one because as I've come into the business, it, it was historically... You know, it was the architects, it was the asset owners, um, it was uh, the engineering companies, um, designers, fit-out companies. Uh, and and ultimately, you know, I, I'm coming at it now with a very different, you know, stupid mindset. Like, I'm like, why aren't we talking to these, this demographic or these people? And, and it's kind of, it's an interesting discussion because I'm going, well, why wouldn't you want? Why wouldn't you want this? If you owned an asset or a, you know, a, a portfolio of assets, why would you want? And why would you rely on two-dimensional, as-built drawings? You know, why wouldn't you want that scanned and you know models created uh, in, in a point cloud? You know, every asset in the world should have this. Uh, and again, I, I compare it to. Um, you know, when we used to used to use fax machines, when was the last time you had a fax? That's what as-built drawings are going to look like. You know, you still use as-built. You don't use digital, you know, three-dimensional models. <laughs> you know, that's, that's and you've just got to look at the world and how fast it's moving to this metaverse and this digital twin space. It's really going fast. And I think in the next five years, as-built will not be, will be a thing of the past. That point, where do you see yourself and the company in five years' time? Do you think you'll still be doing? Do you think you'll still be working, or, or will you try to uh, go down the route of, of semi-retiring? But going by what you've spoken about last hour or so, I think you'll always be be doing something. Otherwise, you'll you'll crack up. Yeah, you know, I like I like this. I mean, like like the last company as well. I I wasn't an abseiler. And, you know, I learned a lot by just being in that space, you know, um, and I, I like this because it's, it's interesting. It's, uh, yeah, I'm not a digital sort of digital minded person. I, I, I don't even know half, you know, on my mobile phone, I'm, you know, if it, if it's, if it doesn't work, I either turn it off and turn it on or give it to somebody. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm the most untechie person you will ever meet, but I'm fascinated by just the same in the in the rope business. I'm I'm really interested in solving uh, you know, being a solution provider. You know, being the person that fixes the problem. You know, give somebody something better. You know, faster, quicker, more reliable. Um, you know, I I, I don't know if I mentioned the story to you about um, uh, one of my oil and ga gas clients, which was a really funny one. Uh, it was Dubai Petroleum he, and uh, he got locked out of his house one day and he called me up and 
he said, um, I'm locked out of my house. <laughs> and I said, okay, okay, uh, okay, how can I help you? And he goes, I don't know yet. But he says, every time I've got a problem, I always call you and you always come up with a, with a solution. <laughs> and, uh, and, and sure enough, I said, okay, well, leave this with me. And we managed to get some guys over to his house and climb in through a window and get his keys and get, let him into his house. And, and he called me back and he goes, see, I told you, you're the guy that fixes, you're the guy that fixes problems. So I, I kind of, from then on, I, I was like, yeah, that's, that's, who I am, I think. I think that's who I, well, that's who I think I want to be is, is somebody who's coming up with a, you know, and that's what this new business is for me. It's, it's, it's something that's really interesting. And I, like I say, I'm not an expert at it, but I just know that there's, you know, if, if somebody were to give this to me, it would solve a lot of problems. Um, I don't think we mentioned it, but the name of the company, it's Urban Surveys, isn't it? Urban Surveys. Yeah. And just urbansurveys.com. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. And what's the, yeah, we, we kind of covered what direction you see going in, in the next couple of years. I suppose how long is a, is a piece of string, really? Because there's so many opportunities and so many avenues you can go down with, with that technology. Um, and especially yeah. the way the metaverse and, and all that is, is coming fast and quite fairly fast at the moment um mm. we'll finish it up now in a couple of minutes because I, i've you know i've kept you for a good while how do you you, you know years ago uh Billy, like how do you deal with the difficult days when you know obviously money would have been perhaps on the back of your mind um you know you you took a pay cut living here in dubai because that's where a lot of people, you know, that's probably the challenge a lot of people face when they come over here. It's obviously just the, the cost of living over here is, is expensive, but it is as expensive as you make it. Um, I suppose my, my, my point is, and my question is, how do you deal with those difficulties when you, work, when you have a lot of things to worry about, perhaps family, money, um, the business, etc.? Yeah, you know, I think I think um, you've got to, you know, like like um, it, you know, like like you know, uh, at fifty one years old, I look back with uh, you know, you always look back with rose colored glasses. There were hard days. There's no question, you know, and you know the when you know three young kids when they were very young and we didn't have you know it cost was going up. You the emotional. You know, you want the kids to go to the schools, and you, you, there were tight times. There were times where, for sure, that the 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 card just didn't work. You know, <laughs> you put it in, and it's there's no money. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I and I don't know what it is, but I I think I was brought up. My dad, you know, he'd, he'd always work for himself, um, and and again, like I said, I, I'd said to you before, he's been my a massive role model for me. He never. You know, I know now because we're all, I'm older and he's worked with me. I know he had tough times when he was young, but I never heard him say it. And I certainly never saw it when I was a kid, you know. Um, and I think that was key for me, no matter how tough it was. Even with my wife, she would go, she'd call me from the supermarket. She goes, oh, the card's not working. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, there's, um, yeah. I, let, me, let, me, let me get onto the bank about that. 
I knew exactly why it wasn't working. There was no bloody money in the bank. So, uh, or I'd bought, you know, I'd taken money out for the business and, you know, uh, I was always robbing Peter to pay Paul. But again, to me, it was always about hustling. You've got to hustle. You've got to, you know, you'll always find a way. You can't stand there and just allow the world to hit you or the, you know, the world's going to keep coming at you and you've got to keep, you know, there are a hundred ways to sidestep and hustle and find, and you've got to constantly be at that. It, you know, I've been at places where I've had massive debt in the business that if it were to, you know, hit the wall tomorrow, I would be in a world of trouble. Yeah. So it, it comes down to appetite for risk. It comes down to, being able to hustle and it comes down to your strengths as well you know what what i've learned about so certainly in my, in my case that you know positivity is a big strength of mine um activator is a big strength of mine adaptability is so i've got all these natural things which i've learned about myself i didn't know it a long time ago but i've learned that's these are natural strengths um and that's how you kind of map it together you know what i mean so so for instance my wife is a she's a futurist so for her she needs certainty of you know she needs what's happening this year <laughs> and, and i'm kind of like i don't even know what's going on this week or today i'm working on today <laughs> and uh and i think that, that you know so you come down to that you know know your strengths no, like so. So I know what Amanda's really good at. She's our planner, you know, strategy planning, making sure everything's in place. I'm the guy that's got to just shake and move at the back of the ship and 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 be the engine room and and. and. So I'm not sure if that's answering your your question, Jamie. But you know, for anybody over here, life's tough. Life's tough anyway. But you've got to make, you know it's as tough as you make it right you can't go well here i am and this happened and that's it you have to go this happened but what did you do and how did you overcome that and what did you do to step around that because you know if you're not putting yourself outside of your comfort zone on a regular basis as you know you you, you know you're not going to build strength resilience character You've got to constantly really push yourself out to those edges. And look, it's stressful at the time. For sure, it's stressful. But it's alive. It's, 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 um, you feel alive when you're on the edge. <laughs> the key is not to fall over the edge. <laughs> the edge is exactly where you want to be. You do not want to be flat then down the middle of the center of the road. You want to be on the edge. And the edge... You're sharp, you're, you, you know, because you're alert, because you have to be, because, you know, if you if you drop it, you, you're falling over that edge. So that that's what I would say is ask yourself, are you on the edge? Are you out there on the edge? Um, pushing yourself, making right, you know, it's making good decisions as well. We see a lot of people come over here and they go, oh, I'm broke. But, you know, what did you spend the money on? You know? And brassy every single night. Yeah. Belong, go on. Brunch, baby, you know, and, uh, you know, fast cars. So, so look, you know, you, as I said, Dubai is the sort of place. It'll, it'll give you more opportunities than anywhere else in the world, as far as I'm concerned. You've just got to find them. You've got to get after them. You've got to be hungry. You've got to get up earlier. 
you got to, you know, eat less, move more, uh, spend less, uh, you know, hustle more. <laughs> so. And the, you, you touched on a few things there, Billy. Um, you said about you, you identified strengths um, of you and, and Amanda. Was that, do you think that really helped you when you became aware of those strengths? Is that something you would have explored the way to be limited? Yeah, for sure. You know, um, working when I started working with To Be Limitless on a personal level before, no, no, after I took over the business, just after I took over the business, actually, I started pers- you know, taking on a personal coach for me to get you know, my head straight. And then I introduced it into the business to, to get my team aligned with what I was thinking. Um, and having a coach is definitely every high performer you know in the world, whether they're athletes or business people, have coaches. Um, you know, I have a coach for my triathlon stuff. I have a strength coach. I still have a life coach. You know, having a coach is a good thing. Having the right coach is a really good thing. Um, so going back to the strength finder, uh, it's a Gallup strength finder. Understanding that that was one of the first exercises we did together and with myself and then with my wife and then with my team and the company and just understanding how unique you are how you're one in 65 million to have those five strengths in that order, that makes you pretty one-off, right? And, you know, as Mick would tell us, you know, all of our lives growing up until that point, what did our teachers tell you? Oh, you're really bad at this. You need to work harder on this because you're really bad at it. And you're going, that's why you shouldn't work on it at all (laughs) because you're really bad at it. But try to get better, better at what you're bad at and whereas the philosophy behind strength finder is know what you're good at and really get great at it <laughs> you know so know your top five strengths not your top 65 your top five because all of the others don't matter those top five in that order are one in 65 million that's what it is so if you don't start really understanding those paying attention to those leveraging those and applying those you're really wasting your energy. Yeah, those that gather strength finder is absolutely fascinating. Uh, we did it obviously with with, with work and uh, yeah. Jesus, it's quite accurate as well, which is a scary thing to be honest about it. It's really accurate. Once you start to know it, uh, you, you go, wow. And I've done it twice. I've done it, I've done it about six years apart from each other, and it was pretty much the same, considering oh. it's a it's a set of questions. So my two top sevens were exactly the same. There was just two that moved into the top five and two moved out of the top five. So, and there's no way you could have remembered what answers you gave seven years ago. So it just shows you how accurate that is. And and again, when you dig into it, when you really look at those and you ask yourself, what is it you bring? That's what you bring. Definitely, definitely 100%. And it's it's, it's probably important. You know, it's something that, every company should do whatever it should be done in schools because these kids will know then that they because to be honest since i've done it i'm much happier i'm like jesus i know i know what my strengths are and at least you can work with them like you know you're more aware of yourself yeah i did it with my 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 two boys when they were about 17 uh just so they they were going away to school and i says it's really important guys you know you got to know who you are you got to know these are your strengths and at the basement of this this is what it looks like at the balcony of this. This is what it looks like. But whatever people tell you, whether it's teachers, 
future employers, remember who you are and remember your strengths. And these are what you're really good at. So hopefully some of it sticks, some of it doesn't, but it's important for them to do that and see it. On that note, we'll, uh, we'll finish it up. And before we finish it, I know we've said this, I've said this about five times now, but I just find you very interesting and, and a fascinating story. Have you um, a motto that you live by? Yeah. So my, you know, my simple, you know, three word is be here now. And, and that's down to who I am again. I'm, I'm not, a futurist i'm not a planner i'm not a strategist i'm very much in the moment yes you know i have plans yes i have things i think about in the future but if i'm not turning up today every day and being really really present in that moment it wouldn't be authentically me and uh, and it's where i i, I probably um it's also and it's in, in its basement it's really bad because you forget you know you've got plans <laughs> it gets stuck in a moment right so my wife sort of would tell you that yeah billy gets stuck in a moment for five hours um so uh so but but it is who i am and that's be here now just be right here right now because nothing else is really guaranteed Last question. I'm sorry I know about this, but do you have a morning routine? I know you train two times a week or three times a week, but those other five days or, or four days, do you, what do you do? I train every day. I, oh. Every day. Yeah, so I every morning I train. I'll take every two weeks, I'll take a day off. So, uh, But it's not training the same, so I'll cycle. Tomorrow morning I've got to cycle. Uh, this morning I was doing a boot camp, a swim and a run. Uh, tomorrow or the day after I'll do a, a run and a, a weight training session. So I have a different training regime, but I train every day. What well, time or do at you... least 13 out of 14 days. Yeah, what time would you would you get up? Are you for was David Labouche says he, he gets a bit of a sleep in on is it Saturdays? No, he, he's he's up earlier on Saturdays at like 10 to 4, something like that. <laughs> Jesus. <It's, laughs> yeah. He's a machine, that guy. He's just a bit different type of human. Um yeah, so so Tuesdays and Thursdays, so today and, and Tuesday, there's boot camp days. So we get up at 4 30 for we have to be on the beach at 5 30 so those are the uh, so every other day it's five o'clock brilliant brilliant look well we finished up there uh billy i really appreciate you taking time out i think we covered a lot um we could you know I could keep this going i could have went down another few avenues about ai and and uh virtual reality etc but look Thanks very much for taking time out to come on an interview podcast, Billy, and best luck with everything that's going forward and best luck in the World Championships in a couple of weeks' time. Thanks, Jamie. Listen, uh, take it easy and I will see you soon for a, a cold one, yeah? I hope you all enjoyed the interview with Billy. I think we had a great insight into his life and career here in Dubai. So that is all from us on this week's episode. Please do get in contact with the show if you'd like to contribute in any way possible. Don't forget to rate, review, and tell your friends family about the podcast. We'd really appreciate it. And be sure to click subscribe or follow on whatever podcast platform you listen to your podcasts on. It means a huge amount and it does make a massive difference. And also, please do go and follow us on our social media channels. Just search an Inside View podcast or on the ball team building 
Have a lovely week and be sure to tune in again next week. We have another exciting guest. Till then, stay safe and remember, cred on a fan. Talk to you all soon and thank you all for listening.